Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, that it wasn't I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Well, good morning. My name is Tom, and I'm one of the guys who lead this church. And what I've just read to you uh, is from the Bible. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 11, and that's where we'll be spending our time today. Maybe um, as I just read it, some questions will come into your mind, or as I preach through it, stuff will come up. Um, I'll try and answer any questions you have at the end, so just keep hold of them. Uh, what we're going to be talking about today from the Bible is the most important thing you will ever hear in your life. That sounds a bold claim. And I'm not saying that my preaching will, will do it justice, because it won't, it can't. But these truths in the Bible are the most important thing you will ever hear. So if you're with us for the first time, you picked a really, really good Sunday to come. <laughs> We're going to be hearing uh, about the gospel. We're going to be hearing about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this question of the resurrection is the question that the atheists don't want to answer. How many of you have read the book The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins? How many of you remember the chapter in that book about the resurrection? No, it's not there, is it? Uh, that, that's funny, given that most Christians would say that the strongest brick in the case for Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus. And in his book, to try and disprove it, he doesn't go there. Interesting. We're going to be preaching the gospel today. In fact, every week at Red, we preach the gospel. Today, we're really going to hammer in on the central stones of what it is, the death and resurrection of Jesus. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're going to get the very heart of Christianity today. If you are a believer, maybe you're here and you're switching off. Maybe you're like, well, I know it already. I've heard this one before. I'm just going to have a little nap. Um, don't do that. Uh, open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm going to uh, just start by showing you why you shouldn't do that. So you can find 1 Corinthians 15, and I'll just read again verses 1 and 2. It says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul's saying, look, the theme here is the gospel. But he's writing to a church. He's writing to people who are already believers, who've already received this stuff. And he said, right, okay, I want to remind you of it. I want to tell you it all over again. 
You see, Paul thinks that the gospel is something that people who, who aren't Christians need to hear and that the gospel is something that people who are Christians need to hear. We all need to hear it. Well, why? Why, why do Christians need to hear this stuff again? Christians need to hear this stuff again because the work of the gospel in the life of a Christian isn't finished yet. Okay, it's not a kind of one-time deal. Been there, done that. I prayed that prayer when I was six and finished with the gospel. Give me the meaty stuff. It's not that, well, I had the gospel on the service where I got baptised when I was 23. I'm done. Give me some really kind of proper uh, preaching now. No, it's the gospel that we need. Paul talks about the interaction between a Christian uh, and the gospel by making three points. He said, first of all, he says, which you received. So there is that moment initially when you were six or when you were 23 or whatever. The, for the very first time you say, yeah, I get it. Yeah, it's true. And yet I'm giving my life to this. That is important. But there's more than that as well. Because then he says, in which you stand. So as well as there being the initial response to the gospel, there's an ongoing response to the gospel. Every day you take your stand in the gospel. Every day you live your life based on the gospel. So let's say it's a question of your identity, who you think you are. You can say, well, I think that I am uh, a builder, or I think that I am a lawyer, or I think that I am a dad, or I think that I am uh, a northerner, or, or whatever it is. <laughs> No, 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 no. Here's who I think I am. I think I'm a sinner who has received the grace of God and by that grace been saved and made into a saint. That's who I am. I'm taking my stand on the gospel. Or in terms of pressure and opposition, when stuff gets hard in your life, when it's all coming in around you, what do you take your stand on? It's the gospel. You don't need to buckle to pressure because you know the God of the universe loves you and gave his son for you. You stand in the gospel. Same with when temptation comes along or when kind of the just desire to waste your life in triviality comes along. No, 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 no. You take your stand in the gospel. So you receive it, you stand in it, and then what? And by which you are being saved. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because you might think, well, well, haven't I been saved already? What do you mean by being saved? I thought that had happened in the past. Well, there's a sense in which you've been saved in the past. But actually, in a much deeper sense, uh, salvation is an ongoing thing. And actually, in the deepest sense, it's a future thing. Because what are you saved from? Well, you're saved from the anger of God that you rightly deserve for your sin on the final judgment day. But that day hasn't happened yet. So salvation is looking to that day. So it's in which you are, you're being saved. Now, if it's more than just a kind of one-time thing in the past and we're looking to the future, who is it that will be saved on that day? If we say it's not just about the people who once prayed a prayer when they were six, what kind of people are the ones who will be saved? Well, it says, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. So the fact that you're saved is shown by your ongoing life, responding to the gospel over and over and over again. Now, some of you might say, well, you say that, but I once heard someone say, once saved, always saved. What's the deal there? Well, um, that can be helpful, um, 
if you understand it rightly. But my worry when I hear people say that is normally they say, well, um, my brother isn't living for Jesus at all. He doesn't love Jesus. In fact, he's living totally against Jesus. But years ago, he, he prayed a prayer. He must be all right then. I don't need to worry about his soul. No, 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 no. It's, the Bible says you can believe in vain. The Bible says you can be responding to Jesus for a while, but then not end up being saved. That is what the Bible says. That's kind of scary, isn't it? Anyone else scared by that? I'm quite scared by that. What I'm scared by is that, statistically speaking, there will probably be people in this room who would fall into that category. Who right now, we're responding to the gospel, yet we don't persevere to the end. Yet we give up on it. That's scary. The kind of faith that's just a fad. It's like a flash in the pan. I'm going for Jesus now, but I won't be going for Jesus at the end. Guys, we need to keep responding to the gospel. And this is a hard one to think of. Looking around, I may be wrong here, I don't think there is a single person in this room who knows from experience what it's like to walk with Jesus faithfully for 50 years. That's a kind of scary thought, isn't it? Because probably that's what the call on most of us will be, to walk faithfully with Jesus for 50, 60 years. For some of it, it might not be. For some, we might get taken home soon. But for a lot of us, the call will be to walk faithfully for 50, maybe 60, maybe 70 years with him. And we can do the, the thing of, look at me, I'm young and I'm passionate and I'm going for it and I'm getting involved in everything. And I love, great, you know, when you're young, the best way to be is young and passionate and going for it and super keen. But let me tell you where the real action is. The real action is taking young and passionate and then um, build on that and get into the word and get mentors in your life and build a structure so that years down the line, you end up old and passionate and faithful and devoted. That's where the action is. And that's what the call on us is. And for that, we need the gospel. We need to keep responding to it. So, So as we come to the gospel today... If you're a non-believer, this is what you need. You need to receive it. If you're a believer, this is what you need. You need to keep receiving it. So let's come humbly. Let's hold fast to it. And just as an aside here, let's have some real serious honour and respect for those old grey-haired saints who've gone before us and walked this faithfully for their whole life. Those guys are heroes to imitate. So, verse 3. I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He says, look, what I'm telling you, it's a first importance. So, okay, imagine sometimes you've been out, you come home, you take your shoes off, you put your coat on the rack, you make a cup of tea, you sit down, you check your emails, and you're like, oh yeah, by the way, I had something to talk to you about. That's not the kind of deal here. This is a first important thing. This is a you run into the house, you're breathless, you leave your shoes on, you leave your car, it's like, guys, guys, you've got to hear this. That's first importance. You've just got to get it out as soon as possible. And he says, um, I delivered to you what I received. Okay, so Paul, the guy who wrote this, when he uh, became a Christian, what happened was Jesus himself appeared to him on the road to Damascus and told him, how it is. 
So Paul said, look, I've told you exactly what I received. I'm not making this up. This isn't just a bit of philosophy that I'm passing on to you. It's not just a cool idea. It's not just a story that I made up. And what I want to say to you is I'm delivering to you exactly what I've received from the Bible, from Paul's account. So in hearing the gospel, you're part of a historic tradition. You're part of something that is rooted historically. Okay, It's not just the ideas of a philosophy. It's a kind of tradition coming out of a historical event that actually happened, the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's why this is the most important thing you can hear. It's not just someone's views on the world. This is a world-changing event that you're hearing about. And it says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So I'm prefaced it a lot with a kind of, we're going to be talking about the gospel, it will do this. We're hearing it now. This is the gospel. Okay? If you've drifted off so far, wake up. This is the gospel. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. Amen? Amen. Christ died for our sins. Okay, some of you might have, uh, from the cultures you've been brought up in, various ideas about who Christ is. You might have ideas that have been passed on to you that, you know, he, he, he was a kind of nice bloke. He, he, he was a bit like um, Gandhi. Uh, he, he, he had some kind of cool hippie um, ideas uh, and just kind of lived a really chilled out life and taught the world to, to relax and put their feet up a bit. That might be what you've been taught in your culture. That's not who Jesus was. Some of you uh, in the culture you've been brought up in might have been taught Jesus was a great prophet. He, he, he was a great man of God, but, but that's all he was, a prophet who could tell you about God. That's not who Jesus was. Jesus was God incarnate. He lived a perfect life on this earth. He did miraculous wonders. He acted in ways that only God should act. He'd forgive people their sins. And he did things that only God could do. Amazing, miraculous signs. And all of it was in the context of, of claims he made to be um, something called the Messiah, which was like a promised, um, anointed saviour king of God. Uh, and he was fulfilling that role. Now, the people at the time, they expected that whoever the Messiah would be, would be like really kind of getting in the face of the Romans, um, destroy the Roman Empire, set himself on the throne, and the nation of Israel would rule the world under the Messiah. What they didn't expect, in fact, what was unthinkable in their minds, was that the Messiah would die. That totally kind of flipped everything they were thinking. But that's exactly what happened to Jesus. And more than that, uh, the claim that's been made is that in the death of Jesus and in his resurrection, he was stepping up as God's victorious anointed king and winning the ultimate victory that they were expecting. But they just couldn't imagine that it would be in the death. We're going to explore in a second just uh, what the death of Jesus means. I just want to, before we go there, observe a historical fact with you. And it's this. Jesus died. Okay, let's just get that clear first. Jesus actually died. Because I've heard some people say, well, maybe he didn't die when he was on the cross. Maybe he just passed out. And he was unconscious. So they took him down, and they put him in the tomb, and then he could get up and walk away. And he didn't really die. Let me make it clear to you. Jesus really, 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 really did die. He was killed by the Romans. I don't know if any of you have ever seen any films about the Romans. The Romans were very good at killing people. 
That was their kind of area of expertise. They were brilliant at it. They put people on the crosses. They put iron through their wrists, iron through their feet, and nailed them to that cross. And they were skilled executioners. They did it to thousands and thousands of people. They knew what a dead body looked like. They, they were more meticulous than that. It wasn't just a, well, he kind of looks dead. It's a, he looks dead. Let's make sure. I've got a spear. It's sharp. I'm going to put it through his side and pierce his heart with it. They made doubly sure that he was dead. Okay? So Jesus died. History is clear. Jesus really died on that cross. And the Bible's clear. Jesus really died on that cross. And what's more, we're told why Jesus died. It says Christ died for our sins. Now, if you've been around church a while, that phrase, Jesus died for our sins, it sounds almost cliched. It's one of those things that gets um, said so often that maybe uh, we forget what it means. Well, it's the idea of a penalty or a punishment. It's a similar thing to say, um, I went to prison for armed robbery. Okay? So because of this offence, this punishment happened. So we sinned, uh, and the Bible says the wages of sin is death. So the penalty that was due to our sin was our death. But what the Bible says here is, no, 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 no. Jesus died for our sins. So the penalty deserved to be on us, but actually he took it. His death was the punishment for our sins. He was our substitute. Now, some of you might say, well, isn't that a bit harsh? Isn't death as a penalty for sin kind of harsh? No, it's not harsh. God graciously gave us life. He graciously created us and put breath in our lungs. And then we chose to rebel against him, our creator. It's high treason in the most cosmic sense imaginable. And yet it's absolutely deserving death. Some of you might say, okay, well, well I kind of get that. I kind of get that death might be a fair punishment. But, but is it fair that he should take the punishment for me? No, absolutely it's not fair. It's called grace. It's unmerited. It's undeserved. It is beautiful. That's why we say it's amazing grace. Because it's just unfathomable. He did it for me. No, it's not fair. But he's good and he loves you. And it says he did it in accordance with the scriptures. So what's that saying is even before this event, even before this, everything was heading here. So from the beginning of history, right until now, everything in history has centred on this event of the death and resurrection of Jesus. If you don't believe me, read your Old Testament. Read Isaiah 53, talking about what Jesus would go through for us. Read Psalm 22, describing what Jesus would go through for us. Read the whole story of the Old Testament scripture and see that this is where it's all building. This is where it's all heading. In fact, after he rose again, it says Jesus on the road to Emmaus with his disciples. You know, he was explaining to them all the story of the Old Testament and what they should have seen. That it was all going here. So Jesus really died, and he really died for our sins. That's amazing. Then it goes on. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So he was buried, okay. He was really dead, and then he was laid in the tomb. Why draw attention to that? Isn't that obvious? If someone's died, you bury them, yeah? Well, in drawing attention to the fact that he was buried, um, Paul is drawing attention to the fact of Jesus' body, okay? He said his body was on the cross, then his body was in the tomb. 
He's put in our minds, well, what's the deal with Jesus' body? And in doing that, he's kind of putting aside any thoughts that might come into our head of, oh, well, well when he raised, maybe it's just his, his spirit rising. And he's going to some kind of celestial afterlife. No, no, no. Paul's got our minds onto Jesus' body. He died, he was buried, then he rose from the dead. You see, his body was buried in the tomb. You know what? It's not buried in the tomb anymore. Some people would want to tell you that all that the resurrection means is that Jesus' spirit lived on. But no, Paul's saying pay attention to the body. If the tomb of Jesus wasn't empty, if his body had still been there, it would have been really, really easy peasy for the opponents of the early Christians to disprove it. Because if they're all going around saying, hey, Jesus is risen from the dead, then the opponents can get his body and say, hey, no he isn't, here's his body. Well, who's going to win that one? But the body wasn't in the tomb. It was gone. So it's not just some kind of celestial thing. Whatever you do with the claims of Jesus' resurrection, you can't say, oh, it's only talking about a purely spiritual deal. No, 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 no. The claim being made is physical resurrection. By Friday, he was dead and buried. By Sunday, he wasn't dead anymore. He wasn't buried anymore. He was risen from the dead. Well, that's a monumental claim to make, isn't it? If you're here um, and, and you're a bit sceptical, you'll be like, risen from the dead, eh? Have you got any evidence? How can you back that up? How, how would you prove that to me? Let's take a look, shall we? See what we've got. Verse 5. And that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. Okay, let's stop there. We've got some eyewitnesses. That's a good start. Some people actually saw him risen from the dead. And these are the guys um, who are making the claims. So um, these are guys who who wrote parts of the Bible. So uh, Peter, um, he wrote the letter of 2 Peter. Um, In 2 Peter, he says, We didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Uh, John, another of the 12, he wrote the letter of 1 John. He starts that by saying, That which from the beginning, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard and which we've seen with our own eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands. So as they're talking about the whole deal with Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, the whole teaching, they said, we saw this. We're eyewitnesses to this. So we have eyewitness accounts that he was risen. Now, some people would want to put forward to you the idea, oh, well, okay, maybe what happened and the reason Jesus' tomb was empty is that um, some thieves stole the body. There were bound to be grave robbers around in them days. But that doesn't work, does it? Because if the body was stolen by thieves, you wouldn't have these eyewitnesses. You wouldn't have good men, righteous men, apostles of God saying, we saw him alive. You wouldn't have that. And these men weren't expecting it to happen, by the way. Now, they should have been expecting it to happen because Jesus had said beforehand, I will rise on the third day. But they weren't expecting it. They'd gone back to their fishing boats, back to their old lives. They'd be like, oh, well, he's dead now. Let's, let's just forget about that and move on. But then they saw him alive. Now, I reckon probably I've got some skeptics in here who, who still aren't convinced. And I bet what's in your mind is, well, that's convenient, isn't it? You know, the guys that you're calling as eyewitnesses, they were the leaders of the early church. How convenient. Now, let's read on. It says, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Okay, so you've got now over 500 witnesses at the same time. 
saw him. Have you got any idea how many people that is? If you were to get all 500 of them in a line along here and round there and round the block and however far it went, and they all were to go, Hi, I'm Tom, and I saw Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Hi, I'm Joe, and I saw Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Hi, I'm Steve, and I saw Jesus Christ risen from the dead. To get to the end of the line, just saying that, it would take an hour and a half. That's how many witnesses 500 at one time is. 500 eyewitnesses to a historical event is a crazy amount. We don't ask for that amount of witnesses to any other historical event. And what Paul said is, hey, we've got them all, and actually, most of them are still alive. So if you don't take it from me, go and ask them. They saw it, they'll tell you, yeah, a few of them have died, but most of them are still around. Now, obviously, we're a couple of thousand years on, uh, and they are all dead now. Uh, (laughs) But the very fact that Paul could say this and make reference to the fact that there were so many witnesses still alive wouldn't make sense if there weren't actually the witnesses there. Okay, there is very strong testimony that 500 people saw it. Now, some people would want to say, oh, well, here's what happened, okay? Here's why you've got eyewitnesses of Jesus. It's hallucinations, isn't it? You know, maybe they just wanted to see it, or maybe they'd been taking some drugs, but they were hallucinating Jesus. Well, um, I won't even go into the fact that that doesn't explain why the tomb was empty, um, but more than that, that doesn't work because hallucinations are individual things because a hallucination is something created by my mind. By definition, you can't see it. Okay, it's my mind shaping what I see in my crazy reality. But people don't share hallucinations. You wouldn't get the 12 all hallucinating the same thing at the same time. You certainly wouldn't get 500 people sharing a hallucination at the same time. That's not how it works. So we've got loads and loads of witnesses here. Now, you might be thinking, well, all your witnesses are sympathetic. All your witnesses are people who already kind of like Jesus. And yeah, I get that there's some value in their testimony. Have you got any hostile witnesses? Have you got anyone who was on the other team? Yes, we've got people on the other team. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Now, I want to focus in on James. Who was James? James was Jesus' brother. Okay. Any of you here have brothers? Put your hand up if you have brothers. Quite a few of you. Um, Put your hand up again if you have brothers and you've ever felt like giving them a slap. (laughs) Most of you who have brothers have felt like giving them a slap. Put your hand up again if you have brothers and you've ever felt like worshipping your brother as God and giving all of your life to spreading the message that everything is about him. (laughs) Only Pete Ferns. (laughs) (laughs) What would it take to make you respond to your brother in that way? What would it take to make you worship your brother and spend your whole life convincing the world that it's all about him. You know, during the life of Jesus, James was not a follower. He was a skeptic. In John 7, verse 5, it says, not even his brothers believed in him. Probably from James's point of view, Jesus was the slightly eccentric embarrassment to the family brother who went about saying crazy things and doing stuff, and they're just like, just come home and make some more doors and tables and just get back to the carpentry, Jesus. And that was probably what he wanted. 
That was James during Jesus' life. After the death and resurrection of Jesus, James, he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, which was like, certainly in the early days of Christianity, like the hub church, the, the kind of big center point church in the known world. Um, a few years um, after Jesus rose again, uh, there was a bit of controversy about those who were non-Jewish who wanted to become Christians. What happens with them? Which of the Jewish rituals do they need to follow? They were all arguing about it. James was the guy who kind of spoke with authority, summed it all up, and made a call on it. James wrote the letter of James, which is actually part of the Bible. And in that letter, he described himself as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't even say, hey guys, I'm his bro. He just said, look, I'm a servant of his. That's the transformation that happened in this guy. What would that kind of transformation take for you? What, what would that kind of transformation to view your brother in that way take for you? It would take something huge, wouldn't it? It wouldn't just be a, hey, i got a cool idea. It wouldn't just be a kind of um, Mormon guy knocking on the door, being like, bam, 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 bam. Hey, what do you reckon? It wouldn't be like um, just a bit of money, a bribe, or a, anything like that. It would take something huge. It would take something resurrection size to make that change happen. So that's James, okay? You might still be thinking, mm, not sure. You've got James. You've got any others who are a bit hostile? Matter of fact, we do. Who'd have thought that? Let's read from verse 8. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. This is Paul himself calling um, himself to the stand as the last witness that he's going to um, hear from. Now, before his conversion, Paul was uh, a murderous persecutor of the church. Stephen, uh, one of the early deacons in the church, he was stoned to death uh, for his testimony about Jesus. And as the guys were stoning him to death, you've got Paul there. He was called Saul in those days. Had a bit of a grin on his face. He was loving every minute of it. He was holding their coats, you know, and, and just reveling in the atmosphere. Then, then, he went off and, and he was on his way to Damascus to find as many Christians as he could and killed them. You might have heard Paul on the road to Damascus. Well, that was the journey he was making because he was wanting to kill all these Christians. That's when Jesus stopped him. That's why he was going there. He was going to kill Christians. This is who he was before his conversion. Now, just hold that in mind and see who Paul was after his conversion. He was an apostle. He was a frontier missionary. He'd go to places where no one had ever been to talk about Jesus. And he would tell them all about him. He, he went through suffering. He's the guy who said, you know what, to live is Christ. To die is gain because I get to be with Christ. He said, I count all other things as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Do you see that's quite a big transformation that happened in this guy? It's the same kind of transformation as, as if on the news tomorrow you found a new video of Osama bin Laden being like, yay, go America. <laughs> It'd be the same kind of transformation as hearing about Nick Griffin devoting the rest of his life to the promotion of ethnic and cultural diversity. <laughs> It would be the same kind of transformation as Wiley Coyote becoming a vegetarian <laughs> and spending the rest of his life promoting the rights of roadrunners. What we're talking about is an absolute, total, 180-degree flip in worldview. The stuff that he was devoted to destroying, he's now all about building. What he hated, he now 
loves. Let me ask you the same thing then. What would it take to make that kind of a change? What would it take? It would take something huge, wouldn't it? It would take something the size of the resurrection. I can't think of anything else that would cause that kind of change in Paul. And that's why he says, um, as to, to me, one untimely born. You see, Jesus has made his resurrection appearances to the other apostles. Then it was like a little bit later on in the story, and after he'd ascended to heaven, he appeared again to Paul. It was a little bit later in the story. So that's what he means when he says, as to one untimely born. Right, so there might be some people who, trying to explain the resurrection away, say, well, okay, you talked earlier about how the body couldn't really have been stolen by grave robbers. Okay, I get that. That was a solid argument. But what if it was the disciples of Jesus that stole the body? Um, And then these appearances, that kind of makes sense of them as well, doesn't it? Because they could have just lied about it because they wanted to start this thing off. Well, First thing I'd say is that's very out of character for everything we know about these guys. Uh, It's not given much creed by historians. Um, They suffered for saying it. Most of them died for saying it. And and that seems a bit mental. You know, would you die for something you knew to be a lie? You might die for the truth. But you wouldn't get people, this many people, dying for stuff they knew to be false. But even if you granted all that, and even if you said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, okay, that does explain why the first disciples believed, Well, that just cannot explain the uh, conversion of sceptics like James and opponents like Paul. It doesn't work. I mean, can you imagine it? Okay, uh, Paul turns up at Peter's house uh, and he's like, Hey, Peter, I've just seen Jesus risen from the dead and he's told me that I've got to stop uh, persecuting the church and now go to the whole world and preach the gospel. And he turns up at Peter's house saying that, and Peter knows that Jesus hasn't really risen from the dead. He's like, on your bike, son, get out of here, that hasn't happened. Uh, And this is just a little game to get. But the fact that Peter knew Jesus was risen meant that even when Paul turned up and was like, hey, I've seen Jesus risen, Peter could be like, cool, let's do this then. Because Jesus really is risen. Maybe you came here this morning. And maybe as you came in, you were a sceptic of Christianity. Maybe you came in as an opponent of Christianity. Well, I believe just as with James the skeptic, or just as with Paul the opponent, I believe the resurrection of Jesus is something big enough to change your life as well. It would take something resurrection size. We have something resurrection size. I'm not asking you this morning to make significant changes in your life based on a flimsy basis. I get to turn your life around, take something huge. Here is something huge. The resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection stands in history. Any alternative explanation of the fact, it falls away. By the standards of any jury in the land, the verdict is overwhelming. Jesus rose from the dead. This is where Christianity stands different from any world religion. Christianity is based on something concrete. It's a response to the greatest historical events that have ever occurred. The death and resurrection of Jesus. So I'm asking you that morning, this morning, I'm asking you to make that response like James made and like Paul made. Because what we're talking about, the resurrection of Jesus, it is big enough. 
It's big enough to change the sceptic. It's big enough to change the opponent. It is big enough for you. So I can come to you with confidence this morning and ask you to become a Christian because I know that the basis for you doing so is big enough. It's the resurrection of Jesus. Let's read on. Verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it wasn't I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul's saying, I was an opponent and persecutor of the church. Now, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Some of you in this room would say, I was a violent person. But now, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Some of you would say, I was a sexually promiscuous person. But now, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Some of you would say, I was an abuser. But now, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Some of you would say, I was a slanderer. But now, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Some of you would say, I was a religious hypocrite. But now, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Here's the thing. The grace of God changes people. The grace of God changes people. So if today you've seen the resurrection, if today you kind of get it, you're like, yeah, that adds up. That makes sense. That happened. Uh, And I I, want to go there. I want to go to God and respond to this. But you're thinking, until now, I've kind of lived like this. I've lived a really shameful kind of life. I couldn't come to God, could I? Yes. Yes, you can come to God. Because God is a gracious God. And when you come to him, you won't be what you were. You will be new. You'll be different. You'll be changed by his grace. Even Paul could come to God. Even this murderous persecutor could come to God and find in that grace something to forgive him and to change him. By the grace of God, I am what I am. It's the same resurrection power. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead that will come to live in you, work in you and transform you. And Paul says, you know what? His grace wasn't in vain. Why wasn't his grace in vain? Because I pressed on. I held fast. I worked. I stood on the gospel. I built my life on it. I continued to let the gospel be the shaping element of my worldview. And he saw the resurrection wasn't just an event in the past. He saw the resurrection is an event to come as well. The resurrection of Jesus was the first fruits of a resurrection to come for all who are in him. That's what I'll be talking to you about next week. If you want a a preview, read on in 1 Corinthians 15. It's an amazing thing. And it might sound crazy to think, well, what are you guys on about? There's a resurrection to come of all believers. Well, we can say that with confidence because we've seen historically the first fruits of it happening in the resurrection of Jesus. And then he says, verse 11, so whether that it was I or they, the other apostles, so we preach and so you believed. He said, It doesn't matter who preached it to you. It's this gospel, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. You believed. You responded to this. And so you're saved. Guys, what I would urge you is preach the gospel. I think, I was reflecting this week actually, I think some Christians can be so um, into the idea of, I've got to become really good friends with someone before I can say anything. Uh, And we kind of use that as an excuse 
not to share this amazing message. And we think, well, well, maybe some people won't like it. Doesn't the Bible say the gospel's the aroma of death to some? Yeah, it does. But it also says the gospel is the aroma of life to some. And nothing else is the aroma of life. There is no other message by which people will be saved other than this message of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So make sure you're bold. Make sure you're sharing this because there's a perishing world out there that needs to hear this. Let's just really apply this stuff. Once you've believed it, what do you do? First thing, if you don't believe it yet, believe it. It's true. Believe it. Then what? Well, we're just going to flip right to the end of the chapter. This is how he wraps it all up. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. He said, here's what you do. You've believed, so now build a life on the gospel and persevere in it right to the end. Be one of those people who are old and passionate and faithful to the gospel. Hold fast to the word. Keep rooted in the gospel itself. What does it look like? Well, be steadfast. Be firmly established. You've decided on this in a deep and meaningful way. And so now you're thoroughly committed to it. Be immovable. Nothing's going to take you off track. Trials, temptations, the influence of significant people in your life, whatever your emotional state is, whatever your physical state is, you're not altering course. You're building your life on the gospel and always abounding in the work of the Lord. So what we're talking about as a response to the resurrection, it isn't just a new way of thinking, so it's not just a new worldview, it is that, but it's also a new life of action, abounding in the work of the Lord. And then he says, knowing that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. There are two ways your labour could be in vain. It would be in vain if it wasn't true and Jesus hadn't risen. We've seen this morning that it is true and he is risen. And it would be um, in vain if you didn't hold fast to it. So that's the question. Will you stand fast? The question is, will you receive the gospel for the first time or for the millionth time? Will you stand in it? And will you hold fast in the word right to the very end? That's the question. I said at the start, if any of you had any questions for me, uh, I'd try and answer them. I, I don't know if any of you do. No, that's okay. Um, if you have any later that come to mind, just grab me and ask me. I just want to wrap up with one more thing. Throughout um, the message, I, I've been saying, okay, well, some people might argue this. Some people might argue that. I think there's one more thing that some people might say, and it's this. They might say, but Tom, you're talking about someone rising from the dead. That just doesn't happen, does it? That's the point. That's why we're celebrating this. That's why we live this. Because it, we're not like, yeah, 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 people rise from the dead all the time. That's normal. No. Jesus rose from the dead. That's something that doesn't normally happen. That's why this is amazing. And you can't say, oh, that just doesn't happen. Look at the evidence. It did happen. And that makes it the most shaping event in the history of the world. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to respond to it. I believe some of you will respond to it by becoming Christians this morning. If that is you, then join with us as we take communion. Okay, we're going to share in the bread and the wine, which is celebrating the death of Jesus for us. It's remembering the death of Jesus 
for us. And in remembering his death, we're remembering that he's alive. And in doing so, in our hearts, we're having communion with him, having fellowship with him. Um, so the, the clear small one is juice. Uh, the big card one is wine. Feel free to take whichever uh, of those your conscience um, says is right for you. Uh, so some of you will become Christians, and um, all of us um, who either already are Christians or have become a Christian this morning are going to share in communion. Uh, we're going to sing, we're going to celebrate, we're going to party, because Jesus Christ is alive. Amen? Amen. Let's do it.